0: this morning we're continuing as consideration of daniel and seeing how the events back in the sixth century before jesus christ relate to us and help us to live well as strangers in a strange land would you like to turn in your bibles they're just in front of you or on your phone if you've got a, a bible it's page 885 we're in Daniel chapter 2 from verse 24 to 49 and the context King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the superpower of the time, has had a dream. And he wants his interpreters, the masters of the dark arts, to tell him what their dream was and interpret it. And they're willing to, but they can't because he won't tell them. So because no one can tell him, Nebuchadnezzar, whose management style was not hands-on or, heads- or hands-on or, or, or uh, hen- hands-off, But heads off, has said, I'm going to kill all the interpreters of dreams, and then includes the Hebrew four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what happens. After Daniel has received the news, gone back to his three friends and prayed. Then Daniel went to Ariok, that's the chief executioner, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also known as Baltasar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man enchanter magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about but there is a god in heaven who reveals mysteries he has shown king nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these as your majesty was lying there your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. And you, after you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what would take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar felt prostrate before Daniel, and paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. The flagship of the fleet, an aircraft carrier, was cruising in the ocean above Scapa Flow in Scotland when all of a sudden a message came out on the expensive radar. "'Adjust your position by 30 degrees, Queen Elizabeth.' The ship's commander was indignant to receive this curt and abrupt message, so he instructed the man on watch to radio back, "'No, you adjust your position by 30 degrees.' A reply came back promptly to the aircraft carrier, "'I insist, adjust your position by 30 degrees.' The ship's commander went red and instructed this message to be radioed back. I am an admiral in the Royal Navy. I command you to change your position by 30 degrees. A minute later, the radio came to life again, and this message came out. I am a first mate. I insist that you charge your position by 30 degrees. By this time, the admiral of the fleet was about to blow a fuse. So he snatched the radio and bellowed, I am an admiral commanding the flagship of the fleet. I order you in the name of His Majesty King Charles III, recently crowned as our king, to move out of the way. There was a pause and then came this reply in a muted voice on the radio. Sir, you better change your position for I am sitting in one of His Majesty's lighthouses. (laughs) Who's in charge? Who's really in charge of your life? We like to think that we are, and our world encourages us, for humanity is so clever, so advanced. Just look at what AI is offering to us already. But today, having witnessed the coronation of our new king of our land and commonwealth yesterday, we consider the experience of two men with very different perspectives and understandings of who is in charge. And as we consider their experience, we're invited to consider two questions ourselves. Who is in charge of my life? And am I, am I really a person at peace in this life? And am I in a place of rest, of abiding and flourishing? So let's look at those two people. Let's begin with Nebuchadnezzar. He's the brutal and tyrannical leader of Babylon, the leader of the greatest superpower of the time. He is also the wealthiest man, in the world but he was a man with a problem and many of us can relate to this he could not sleep and he had not been able to sleep the commentators tell us for a long period of time and he's been troubled by the same dream what's the big deal if you can't sleep just cut out the caffeine put some soothing music on go to bed, chill out, have some exercise. That is what the therapists tell us will help us to sleep. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar did that, but still he couldn't sleep. And the problem arose that as the king, he was expected to receive dreams, for dreams were the way in the ancient world that the gods communicated with their leaders and then to be able to interpret them This was well known. It was a practice. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar has created a whole department of his civil service called the Ministry of Dreams, Astrology, Magic and Wonders where men were trained to interpret dreams. And there would have been a huge library just as in Hogwarts of spells and potions and of dream analysis. But yet Nebuchadnezzar is somehow and for some reason so insecure that he won't tell anybody what his dream was or consult the library himself. Instead, he wants everyone to tell him. If they can, he will promise them riches beyond measure. He is so insecure. If they can interpret them, they will have worldly wealth. If not, he's going to kill them. That will focus their minds but the mystics and the wise men couldn't tell nebuchadnezzar and so he followed through on his promise and ordered that all the wise men including the hebrew four who've been taken out of their homeland who have been deported and who are being subject to cultural brainwashing in the ways of Babylon to remove the very presence of God in their lives as well as in the land that they are to be killed. How has Daniel and his friends responded? Well, they've gone back, they've talked, they've praised God in worship, and they have prayed, and they've waited on God, and this has now prompted Daniel to come and to take this action politely confidently he approaches the king's chief executioner a man called arioch and there's something here for us that when we are faced and confronted with disarming and devastating news how are we to respond yes we must acknowledge our humanity and our pain and there will be pain and trauma and the shock that's completely understandable but Daniel gives us help here he says gather with others and with pray how often friends do we gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and are real and honest and pray with them and bring God into the situation and having done that Daniel then comes and asks to speak to the king when he's faced with danger And his actual death, notice how he responds with calmness, with wisdom, and with tact. Quite a contrast to the Apostle Peter, who, in a couple of hundred years' time, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, and the temple guards arrive to imprison Jesus, what does Peter do? The worldly thing. He pulls out his sword and chops the ear off one of the guards coming from the temple. And Jesus says, Put away the sword. When we're faced with danger, however devastating and frightening it may be, we're not to pull out our swords. We're not to respond as the world does, but to to acknowledge our fear, to pray with others with God, and then with grace and tact, follow through. So this is what Daniel does. He goes and asks Ariok if he can speak to the king. And notice Ariok's response he immediately follows through, takes him before Nebuchadnezzar and says, what I have found. Really? No, you didn't. Daniel came to you. But notice Daniel's response. He doesn't argue. He doesn't try and take the credit. He lets that wash over him. And so with us, when someone tries to take the credit, much though it may hurt us, Perhaps Daniel is encouraging us to have a different approach. And then Daniel comes and explains to the king what the dream means. What does this dream mean? Subsequent history reveals to us that what Daniel interpreted was true. The gold head represents the Babylonian empire, the greatest empire of the time. The silver chest and the arms represent the empire that will follow Nebuchadnezzar in 70 years' time. That's the Medes and the Persian Empire. And then the bronze belly and thigh of the statue represents the empire that will follow the Medes and Persians. That was the Greek Empire and the role and leadership of Alexander the Great. And then the empire that followed the collapse of Alexander and the Greeks was what? the Roman Empire, and history will tell us that what Daniel prophesied to be true, but back to the statue. Let's look at the feet for a moment. The base of the statue is made of iron mixed with clay. The wealth, the power, the technology, the influence of Babylon, and all earthly powers stand on a human foundation. That's what the base is, And what happens as the picture shows us out of nowhere a rock appears and smashes the base of the statue. What does that mean? Bear with me and allow me to explain. It means this. This is what the dream means. God may choose to bless people and work his salvation purposes out in ways that will surprise us and astonish us, in people who may surprise and astonish and frighten us, and in a timescale that we may not like that will surprise and astonish us. But God is sovereign, and Daniel is part of God's salvation plan, fulfilling the promise given to Abraham all those years before, and now he's opening up to people beyond the Israelites. Secondly, the dream tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will fall. And thirdly, this colossal statue represents anyone and anything that stands in the way of Almighty God. Why? Let's go to that rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, Scripture tells us this. Romans chapter 9, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, the rock is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone Isaiah on which we are to build our lives. And then importantly, 1 Peter 2 verse 8, he is the stone that will make humanity stumble. And then significantly this, Jesus said himself in Matthew 21, 43, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, But to he whom on it falls, they will be crushed. So the word of God is prophesying to us that Jesus is the stone who will smash all empires so that they will be completely removed from this earth, however great they appeared to us. Why? Because Jesus is the rock. And Jesus is the rock who went to the cross. It's a kingdom not of power, but of humility. A kingdom not of physical strength, but of divine mercy and compassion. It's a kingdom not of control, but a kingdom of surrender and sacrifice. And we see that on the cross. The one who entered his capital city on Palm Sunday, lowly on a donkey, would go to that cross and there in our place, die for all that is wrong in our lives and the universe and rise to new life. And in so doing, bring God's healing, God's presence, and God's kingdom into being. And that changes everything. Now, Daniel didn't know that was to come. But he knew who the God of this King Jesus was. And he was obedient in his heart, although he lived in a heathen land. And so Daniel chose to live the life that God invited. And so he was a man of peace, of confidence. Yes, I'm sure he was terrified. But he was a man of Christian peace, calmness and faith. He had the right perspective on life. Babylon was temporal. Yahweh was eternal. His heart was secure in the hearts of God and in the empire of God, not in the emperor of this world. Now, as I ask myself, I ask you, how is your heart this morning? Are we living with a heart of peace, abiding fully in the presence and promises of God? Or are we perhaps like Nebuchadnezzar? And that's how he responds. He receives the dreams and acknowledges it. And this is how he responds. He pays homage to Daniel, but he's paying homage to the wrong man, to Daniel, not to God. He appoints Daniel and his three friends to positions of great responsibility. Imagine how that felt and how it was received by everyone else. Daniel becomes the equivalent of the prime minister living in the royal court who will administer all of the Babylon, all of the empire, and then his three friends are sent out into the promises to make sure that what he says will happen. There's God at work, changing the greatest kingdom from the inside out, from a lowly and faithful young man, a teenager who will become the, the prime minister and then his friends will be out in the provinces to make sure it happens. But notice Nebuchadnezzar. He says the right things, he does the right things, but he promises allegiance to who? To Yahweh as being one of the gods, Notice it's plural. He's not the God, the only God, as Daniel knows. And he doesn't change his behavior when he is called to this act of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar makes a gesture that looks good and sounds good, but his heart is not fully transformed. And there's something here as I close now that many of us will have had that experience of God, maybe in a miraculous way, a supernatural experience of God, and we've responded in a way to Him. But maybe our heart's gone cold. Or maybe we're just going through the motions. We're appearing to do the right things before others, but our heart has not been truly surrendered. So this morning, as we come to Communion, I invite you to bring your heart to the heart of God, to allow his heart to fill you afresh, to heal you and to give you his peace, his presence and his power in fresh measure. Why? Because the cross of Jesus Christ demands my life, my soul, my all. And as Daniel and his friends did, when they did, He lived with perfect peace, and God brought his perfect kingdom into being. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Daniel's faithfulness and your salvation working through him. Come now, Lord, and meet us afresh. Lord, we come as we are. Lord, and if we do not know that peace, Lord, we ask you to fill us afresh with that peace. Lord, our love for you waxes and wanes, mine does. Come, Lord, as we surrender to you in this sacrament, fill us afresh that our hearts may overflow with your love and that your spirit, Lord, may transform us fully and freely that we can live with peace, with confidence and with joy despite all that is going on around us, knowing, Lord, that you are sovereign. Amen. Amen. Chris, if we can have that song.